Thanks for joining us on this day, which has been made for us by the Lord our God. I'm Chad Bowen, and I'm the pastor at Moore Memorial United Methodist Church. Our congregation gets together each week for worship in our historic sanctuary in the heart of downtown Winona at 9 and 11, and we would love to have you join us in person. In the meantime, we hope that this radio ministry increases your knowledge and love of God and your capacity to serve God as you love your neighbor. Today's message is about baptism and includes some of the things that we as Methodists believe about baptism that distinguishes us from other Christian denominations. If you'd like to talk further, or maybe even if God is calling you to be baptized, I'd love to hear from you this week. You can call us at the office at 283-3804 or email me at chad, C-H-A-D, at moorememorialumc.com. If you'd like to give to support our ministries, we'd be grateful for your generosity. You can give on our website, moorememorialumc.com, or by mailing a check to P.O. Box 467 in Winona. We pray that the Lord blesses you richly this week. Amen. Let's pray. Eternal Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the gift of your church that you have gathered together online today and by radio to worship you. We thank you for the gift of technology that helps us remain connected to one another even as we are socially distant. We pray, Lord, that you would speak clearly today your word, your word that invites us to faith in you by the power of your gospel, which is an invitation to us to participate in the life of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would speak clearly. We pray that you would give us ears to hear pray that you would give us the grace that we need to respond in faith to your invitation today. This we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, he who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Our scripture readings this morning come from first the book of Acts, chapter 16, and after that we'll be in Colossians, chapter 2. Our first reading comes from Acts, chapter 16. This, this story happens as Paul and Timothy are uh, traveling together with Silas, and they've made their way to Macedonia. And in Macedonia, they have met a woman named Lydia, where they, uh, they went to pray by the river on the Sabbath day, and she and other people who were pursuing God were there. They introduced them to Jesus. Uh, they were baptized, and Lydia invited them to come back and stay at their home while they continued to evangelize in her city. So as they evangelize, they're going to the place of prayer again later, as was their habit. Uh, Paul and Silas were there, and this woman begins to follow them. And this woman had a gift of divination that came from a spirit that lived within her. Um, and there were two men who had enslaved her and were making money off of her. And she was following them, shouting out, These men are the slaves of the Most High God, who proclaim to you a way of salvation. And for many days she continued to follow them until Paul got annoyed and he cast out the spirit from her that was allowing her to see who they were and their role in the light of God, but also who had made these men a lot of money. So that's where the story picks up. When her owners saw their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, These men are disturbing our city. They are Jews. 
and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was an earthquake so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. So the jailer called for lights, and rushing in, he fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They answered, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him, And to all who were in his house. At the same hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds. Then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced that they they had become a believer in God. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our second reading this morning comes from Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, Colossians chapter 2, and we will pick up in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in him. He who is the head of every ruler and authority in him also, you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, you also were raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him. When he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands, he set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. The word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You pray with me and for me now. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts find acceptance in your sight, Almighty Father. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. What's the appropriate response to the gospel? Faith. And how do we enter into the life of faith? Through the saving waters of baptism. But baptism is not some sweet thing that we do in worship where we bring a baby in front of everybody and we ooh and awe as the baby coos. Baptism is a matter of life and death. 
It's a matter of the very grace of Jesus and his death and resurrection putting us to death in our sin that we may be raised into new life, delivered from sin that reigns over us and raised into the power of our resurrected Lord. It cleanses us from sin. It's guilt and shame and it's power over us. The gospel turns everything upside down on its head when we enter into it. And we see this in the story of Acts. At one point in Acts, they say, these are the people who've turned our world upside down. And certainly that's what happens with the jailer. The jailer who's supposed to be the enemy, who's a part of the group who have beaten Paul and Silas with rods. The man who's complicit in the unjust treatment of these men who've been thrown in jail by men who are mad that they can no longer make money off of an enslaved girl with an evil spirit. Paul and Silas don't groan and grumble to one another while they're in jail about the injustice of it all or tell all of the people how they don't deserve to be there. No. They sing hymns. And they pray. Now, they don't just let it all pass as if it never happened when the Romans try to release them with no fanfare on the next day. Paul and Silas say, no, you got to at least come see us before we go. You beat us in public and you don't get to just let us go and kick us out of your town. They weren't having it. But while they're in jail, they're not grumbling and groaning about the state of affairs. They pray And they sing hymns. And their worship and faith in God has so much power that a miracle happens. Their worship shakes the foundation of the prison that holds them. The Lord sets the captives free. Literally, the doors of the jail are unlocked. The shackles on their hands and around their feet are, they come off of their feet So much so that when the jailer realizes what happened, he assumes that they've all done what you would expect any prisoner to do who has a wide open door and no chains in front of them. They've escaped. And who's ever going to believe his story? An earthquake, you say? It happened to open all of the doors, you say? And unshackle every prisoner, you say? Right, right. Put him to death. So instead of trying to tell this ridiculous story to others, he decides he'll take his own life to avoid the shame of the whole thing. And Paul cries out to him, Don't hurt yourself. We're still here. And now the jailer is disoriented. He wants to know what it will take for him to be saved. And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus. And the jailer takes them to his house. They proclaim the word of God to him and his whole family. And he washes their wounds. No longer are they someone for him to lord over and to keep in shackles. They are people for him to serve. And he and his entire family are baptized. And he feeds them a meal. The prisoners and his family Sitting together, eating together. 
the man who is certain that his death was assured a few hours before, has led his family into everlasting life by bringing Paul and Silas to them as they have brought the gospel. And the whole household is baptized. Probably included the kids. Maybe even some who are too young to consciously profess faith for themselves. The gospel of Jesus Christ turns everything upside down. An oppressor becomes a caregiver. Restraints become an opportunity for hospitality. A prisoner becomes a trustworthy evangelist. Enemies become friends. Brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. And the leader of the house church that this jailer is going to end up going to, the only name of a Christian that we get from first century Macedonia is a woman. A woman who's an entrepreneur, Lydia. The church at Lydia's house, it's described. Already in the church, we have women who are leading in the gospel of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit that is filling Paul and Silas is making their work possible. The same Spirit that continues to operate in the church today. The power of God among the people of God is something to be reckoned with. The proclamation of the gospel leads to a response of faith, and that leads all of them to share a meal. Does that sound familiar? The power of God leads to the proclamation of the gospel that leads to a response of faith that leads to sharing a meal. This is the structure of our response as a church when we have communion. It's a part of the radical reversal that happens in our worship at least once a month. That those of us who once were enemies have become friends who can share a meal in the power of the gospel. A reality that's made possible by the grace of God that we've received in our baptism. The proclamation of the gospel, a response of faith, sharing a meal. So when we come to this passage in uh, Colossians, as we read about what he says about baptism, he's talking about what it means for us to enter into the life of Jesus as a part of the life of the church. And he frames it Christologically. We've talked about how when we gather together as a church, we become participants and acknowledge how we are members of the body of Christ with Christ as our head. And this is the language that he uses about baptism, that we are incorporated into Jesus and into his mighty acts of salvation. That Jesus, in whom the fullness of deity dwells, we receive that fullness in him. We become participants through baptism in the divine nature. In doing this, he disarms the rulers and authorities, makes a public example of them, triumphing over them. Don't you see how that happens with Paul and Silas in their story? The authorities look like fools except for those who've come into the fullness of the gospel, who've come into the foolishness of the gospel. As Jews 
demand signs and Greeks demand knowledge. The response to the word is a response of faith. So as we talk about the third movement of worship, we're gathered together by the Spirit. We hear the Word of God proclaimed, and then as the people of God, we respond in faith. Baptism is the quintessential example of this. And Paul gives us a few different images in the book of Colossians to think about this in this passage that we just read. He says that we're circumcised with a spiritual circumcision. Circumcision for Jews was a mark of identity of who they were as members of the people of God. If you were a boy and you were born to a Jewish family, on the eighth day you were going to be circumcised as a mark that you were a child of Abraham, that you were a participant in the promises that God had made to Abraham. You get a name as a member of Abraham's family. You get a place in the family as a part of the land that has been promised. You are a part of a family. This is what happens in baptism as well. You get a name, a Christian name. You get a place at the table. You become a participant in the family of God, adopted into God's family as a son or a daughter. If you ever want to know why baptism is not repeatable, Just ask why circumcision wouldn't be repeatable. Baptism is like circumcision, a rite of initiation that brings us into a community and marks us as a part of God's family. It's also a participation in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Immersion embodies this best for us. This is why immersion is a faithful expression of baptism, because when you are taken under the water... It is like a death. And when you are brought out of the water, it is like being raised in to new life. You have died with Christ. And you have been raised in his power into new life. The old flesh has been washed away and something new has been created in you as the same person, but now the person that God intends you to be. And forgiveness that God has wiped your forgiveness off off of you, that he has nailed it to the cross. This is why pouring and sprinkling are appropriate forms of baptism as well. Because it reminds us of what it means for the blood of Christ to wash us clean, to wash us as white as snow. Now, there has been for several centuries an inclination to use as little water as possible. But over the last hundred years or so, the church has reclaimed the practice of using as much water as possible. Because what the water is a sign for us of and an an action for us of is the washing of the Lord. So we don't want just a few drops. We want to get wet to receive the grace of God flowing over us. Baptism is circumcision. It marks us. It's a sign of death and new life like we see in immersion. It's a sign of forgiveness and the washing clean of the guilt of our sin as we see in pouring. or. But when we're baptized, we aren't just baptized. Either someone on our behalf, if we're baptized as, as babies unable to speak for ourselves, or we ourselves make vows in our baptism. 
we make a confession of faith as a part of our baptism. And the vows that we make are really important because they go to the identity that we receive in the circumcision, the spiritual circumcision of baptism. The first question in the Methodist Church that we ask of candidates for baptism is, do you renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness? Do you reject the evil powers of this world? And do you repent of your sin? Renounce, reject, repent. Renounce, say that you are no longer a part of it. Reject it and repent. Say that you want to be something different. The first vow is a way of saying, I'm not on that team any longer. I have stepped away from the team of sin and evil and the power of Satan. The old question for baptism that's in our older book of worship is, do you reject the devil and all of his wiles? Whose team are you on? Not the team of evil and wickedness. And then the next question is, are you actively opposed to that team that you used to be on? First, you renounced, rejected, and repented. Now the question is, do you accept? Do you accept the freedom and power God gives you to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves? What have you renounced? Have you accepted your authority to work against those things? And finally, whose team are you on now? Do you confess Jesus as your Savior? Put your whole trust in his grace and promise to serve him as your Lord in union with the church, which Christ has opened to people of all ages, nations, and races. Do you confess Jesus as your Savior? Do you put all of your trust in his grace for you, not on anything that you can do, and promise to serve him as your Lord in conjunction with the whole church that is made up with all kinds of people in all kinds of places? You're on a new team with Christ as the head and the whole church as the body. And then after the baptizand or the confirmand has made promises, the church makes promises. They renew their promises to reject their old team and their commitment to Christ. And then they promise to disciple these new folks who are coming under their care. They promise to be ministers of the gospel by proclaiming the good news and living according to the example of Christ. And they promise to surround them with a community of love and a community of forgiveness that these people before them may grow in grace and their trust of God and be found faithful in their service to others. They promise to pray for them that they may be true disciples who walk in the way that leads to life. And then... After the vows, we confess the nature of our faith with the historic creed that we call the Apostles' Creed. We believe in God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And as God has worked in the person of Jesus and as God continues to work in the life of the church. And then, after they have renounced and rejected and repented, after they have accepted and confessed after the whole church is joined in the promises, then we get them wet. And we baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.
Before I close, I want to clarify a few things. In baptism, we trust in the Lord who has brought us into the saving work of Jesus through the waters of baptism. This is the ordinary way that we experience God's extraordinary grace. Is it possible to be saved without being baptized in water? Absolutely. And remembering this was super important in times of acute religious persecution. There were people who were converting to the faith and being arrested and killed before ever they could get to the church to be baptized. And so the church has maintained that that, that death is a sort of baptism. And this is even included in our Eucharistic liturgy, where we say by the baptism of his suffering, death, and resurrection, Jesus gave birth to the church and delivered us from slavery to sin and death. Death is a kind of baptism. And God is more gracious and more just than ever we could imagine. But if you have not been baptized... I would encourage you not to look for the exception about why you don't need to be baptized, but to take the ordinary means by which you can receive the extraordinary grace of God. Some of you may be wondering why we baptize kids. If a profession of faith is an integral part of baptism, why do we baptize kids that can't yet speak? We baptize kids because it's an important recognition that baptism and salvation is God's work and not ours. It doesn't start with us. It starts with the work of God at work in our lives long before we know what's going on. It also acknowledges that none of us know what we're committing ourselves to when we're baptized, no matter how well we understand the vows. We don't know what will be asked of us in our vocation as Christians. And we don't know the mystery of baptism in its fullness, regardless of how much theology we study. We baptize kids because it reminds us that it is God's work and not ours. But it's important that kids are not the only people that we baptize. We need to baptize teenagers and adults too because we need to remember that the story of the jailer is the story of a real Christian that the power of God can turn everything around, that the gospel isn't just for those who've grown up in the church, but for everyone, for absolutely everyone. So we baptize kids because it reminds us that God is the one who saves us. We baptize adults so that we remember that at any point in our life, God can enter in and turn everything around. It's important that especially when we think about the power of baptism, that we not enter into some kind of magical way of thinking. That just because we baptize an infant, that they are sure to be a part of the life of God for forever. God does something powerful in baptism because he invites us and initiates us into a new life. But that new life is something that is ongoing and it's something that's present even now. So we don't trust that our baptism saves us. We don't trust that our faith saves us. We trust that the faithfulness of Jesus saves us. If it's anything else, we're always wrapped up in whether we have enough faith, whether our faith is sufficient, and that's not the question. The question for us is, and always will be, is Jesus's sacrifice for you sufficient, and has it invited you into a new way of being? And the answer to that question for those who are baptized is yes, always unequivocally yes. 
There's no need for muttering or stammering or wondering or doubting. Our God is mighty to save, and he does it by water and the Spirit, by baptism, by water and fire, incorporating us into his family, introducing us and including us in his salvation, bringing us into the fullness of him in whom the fullness of deity dwells. We become participants in the divine nature through baptism that incorporates us into the saving work of Jesus. It makes us members of his body. He is our head, and we are his body. What a beautiful, powerful thing. I wonder if God is calling you to be baptized. If you've not been baptized, I pray that he is. Or maybe you know that you've been living not in the grace of your baptism, but in something else for quite some time, and it's time for you to reaffirm the vows that you made first at your baptism or at your confirmation. And to remember that grace that is available to you in the waters of baptism and in the self-offering of Jesus invites you to be a fruitful and faithful member of God's family. Maybe it's time for you to ask the question, what must you do to be saved? And the answer for you is the same answer as, as the answer to the jailer and his family. Believe the gospel and be baptized. If God is calling you, do not delay. Respond to the goodness of his word. Amen. Amen.